0: And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, from the Acts of the Apostles, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Today we are taken directly into the heart of the early church, given a view to the primacy of the church's encounter with the risen Christ in the breaking of bread. An encounter that continues to this day. In the Acts of the Apostles, we read that after 3,000 souls were added to the number of the church through baptism on the day of Pentecost, they devoted themselves, devoted themselves, that's a very strong word, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers these four actions of the apostolic church are not standalone actions. Each relates to the other. The church is Eucharistic because she is founded upon the apostolic teaching, what was delivered to the apostles by Jesus Christ Himself. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, what I received from the Lord, I passed on or delivered also to you. The church is devoted to prayer because she is one communion and fellowship, one with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is continually devoted to prayer at the right hand of the Father. And in her Eucharistic life, devotes herself to prayer for the life of the world. From the earliest days, this part of the liturgy, which is explicitly Eucharistic, always began with prayer following the sermon, the deacons would close the doors, and they would shut out all the catechumens, and they would begin to pray for the church and for the world. These Christians in the, in the text which we read today, as we do today, understand their role as what Peter calls a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, To be that of a people devoted to prayer, in the same way the fellowship of the church depends upon her oneness with the Lord in the Eucharist and her oneness in the proclamation of the apostolic faith. I could go on and on and on about the interrelatedness of these four, which we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The point is that the church is not at one time merely devoted to teaching or merely devoted to fellowship, but devoted to all of these actions at once. It says, and for a reason. And the reason for this is nothing more and absolutely nothing less than the church's union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is apostolic according to the Lord's own words. As the Father has sent me, even so, or in the same way, or in as much as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Meaning with power, with authority, with a mission to love and save lost humanity. When the church understands that her mission is different from that of her Lord, she loses her apostolic life. The church lives out a life that is a life of fellowship, As John puts it, a fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The church is one body with many members, and she is not a different body than that of Jesus, ascended to the right hand of the Father, but one body with Him. Just as man and woman are joined together in one flesh, so is Christ with His Bride. The church's Eucharistic life stems from the very life of Jesus, who in a continual priestly act pours out his life as God and man before the Father, and who simultaneously through this pours out his life for that of the world. The Eucharist is nothing less than bodily participation in the body and blood of Jesus who pours out his blood continually for the life of the world. One can expound upon this mystery, but at the end of the day, this is what the breaking of bread is, union with Jesus Christ. Lastly, ancient Christians understood what we often forget, that prayer is made valid in and through Jesus Himself. Time and again in Holy Scripture, we are directed to offer our prayers to the Father through Jesus Christ. Paul especially uses this phrase, through Jesus Christ, meaning that the instrument not only of our prayers, but our very salvation is Jesus Christ Himself. We teach our children this. End your prayers with this. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In fact, one of the... uh, effects of boredom during this time of quarantine is watching really stupid TikTok videos, and I saw one a couple days ago of a young woman who was ordering pizza or something, and at the end she said, at the end of her order, she said, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. It's ingrained in us to believe that the praying life happens through Jesus, through whom all prayer is made valid. In this season of Easter, we are continually drawn to remember the Lord's essential unity with His church. That's why we read from the Acts of the Apostles during Easter. And I must say that much of the dissonance of this particular Easter tide has been the proclamation of the church's union with her Lord in His death and His resurrection through one baptism with the proclamation of her union with Him in one body and one bread. The church's Eucharistic fellowship can only seem to have suffered during this time in which at this very moment I'm standing as so many priests of the church are, not even in the pulpit because our audio doesn't work, it just fails, but here, connected only by the power of the internet and a few people to read, etc., There is temptation implicit in this to think that this virtual connection has now replaced the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And let me say that it is only temporary and not at all an ideal, but it is very hard to see how this has not been an utter disaster. To this, I want to reply to myself as much as to you. The first thing to be said about the church's Eucharistic life is that it does not depend upon regular reception of the Eucharist as a first principle. The first principle is not receiving the Eucharist. That comes later. This first principle is that the very identity of Jesus Christ is one who is at the right hand of the Father the very word of God which shall not pass away, who creates and sustains the created word, the created world by the word of his power. It is in the person of Jesus Christ that all of creation subsists, and in the person of Jesus Christ that the Eucharistic life of both the world and the church subsists. Is it a tragedy that we're in this predicament for a time? Yes, of course. No one is saying otherwise. But the basis upon which the church rests her Eucharistic life has not faltered. And will never falter. Even when sacraments cease. And this is a message that we very much need to hear. The disciples along the road to Emmaus, what is it that causes their hearts to burn? Listen to what they say. Did not our hearts burn within us as we heard His word along the way? Their hearts burn for Jesus. (laughs) Living and active with them through His word, interpreting His word to them, their hearts burn to be with Him in glory. In addition to all of this, I must say that you'll note we have not ceased to celebrate the Eucharist at this altar during this time. Many parishes I know of have opted for praying morning prayer during this time. They ask, if people cannot receive, then what is the point? To this I would say first, I will never, ever, as a matter of principle and conscience, deny the sacrament to communicants in good standing who ask not under any circumstances. While our public liturgies have been curtailed, this is a line I am not willing to cross. But I must say, and will say this, even when only a few people gather around the church's altar together in the flesh, the whole church is constituted. That is the point. And it is not because of that gathering, but because of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in his body, in the breaking of bread, which does not depend upon our bodies, but upon his grace and mercy, which he has promised. Listen to what he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, not what? Oh, they have wonderful fellowship together, and isn't that nice? No, it's there am I in the midst of them. He doesn't say in Matthew 28, go and make disciples, so on and so forth, and, and if you do all that, then I'll be with you. He says, go do it. He knows we'll fail. He knows we won't be perfect at it. He knows that our fellowship will be, will be, tri- will be marked by trial. But he says, I'm with you always. In fact, he says, Lo, I'm with you always. Look, I'm with you always those disciples on the road to Emmaus met the risen Christ not only in meditating upon His Word in probably the greatest Bible study that's ever been conducted in all time, but in the breaking of bread. But it would be quite false to say that it was only those two. The whole church meets the risen Christ every single day time the Eucharist is celebrated because we are one body. The Eucharist is the very means by which we can say that even though separated from one another, we are ontologically one communion and body. As the church's life pours forth, not from our intentions and not even from our being together, but from the side of Jesus at the Father's right hand. We gain our identity from His wounds. We gain our identity from His place at the right hand of the Father. I'm reminded of Teresa of Avila this morning who is continually pestered by Satan in her prayers. One day, Satan disguised himself as Jesus. But Teresa was not fooled. I mean, not only because she was a Spaniard, and Spaniards are not easily fooled, but because she was a saint. (laughs) She looked for the wounds in his body, in his hands, in his feet, and she found none. And she said, Go away, Satan. Just as Thomas looked to the wounds of Jesus for confirmation of the Lord's identity, which we meditated on last week in the readings, the church continually looks to Jesus in the Eucharist for confirmation that we are his saints that we have been bought with a price, that we have been offered a living communion with the Father through Him. Friends, this has not been diminished. You and I are partakers of the divine nature because of what we have become in Christ, not so much through the Eucharist, but first, remember always what happened first. Being joined to the Lord Jesus Christ as one body, through one baptism, through one faith, through one Lord. So I want to be clear about this. The church's Eucharistic life is not hampered. What is hampered, and what has been the cause of our sadness is not only not seeing one another, but not visibly sharing in this sacrament together. And with the wardens, I've outlined the reasons for this temporary alteration to our liturgical life, but I say all of this on this morning so that we can be theologically clear about what it is we have sacrificed. We have not sacrificed the Lord's Eucharistic life. That is a fact which is established which we cannot change, which we cannot make less, which we cannot diminish. All the while, I want to say as well this morning that a sacrifice of our normal liturgical life can be understood to have great power for the church and for the world. We can actually understand this to be a kind of priestly offering on behalf of the suffering and dying world in which we live, and we can understand that together. Together. One of the contemporary idols that has been ousted during this time, or I should say outed during this time, is our idol of radical individualism. I mean, and this colors how we think about the Eucharist. It's like, I've thought this, if I'm not receiving, then what the heck does it matter? If I'm not there, then what does it matter? Priests are tempted to this, too. I talked to many priests who say, if I'm not the celebrant, then what does it matter? And, and they completely misunderstand, completely miss it. Just as Christians hearing this story of these two disciples along the road to would have misunderstood it, they said, well, <laughs> I can't believe I wasn't there. I missed it. Oh, well. No, the message coming from those two disciples was not, oh, you should be really sad. You missed this cool event. It was really amazing. No, it wasn't that at all. It was, He was made present to us in the breaking of bread to you and to us. Otherwise, why put it in Holy Scripture at all? The message is good news for all of God's church. And part of that message is that that idol which we have of being tempted to think only about individual goods, only about what's good for me, only what's good for myself, and maybe for my family, maybe for my kids, has been cast aside. We are tempted to believe that these individual goods even overshadow our duty to uphold the common good And the church must see this as little more than a lie, and it is revealed in the sacrament which we celebrate today. That the true meaning behind human life is unity with the Lord Jesus Christ. That the real reason you and I were made is to be with and like Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We are not, as members of the body, individuals who happen to believe the same things, do the same things, etc., 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 but who are grafted into one body and therefore participate in one liturgy, participate in one prayer, participate in one fellowship, receive one apostolic mission and teaching, We are members of one fellowship sent into the world together in a saving mission. And that mission is none other than the mission of Jesus Christ to love and save lost humanity. And that is why the Eucharist is celebrated just as Jesus says, The bread which I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. We do well to remember that freedom for the Christian does not consist in doing whatever we happen to desire at whatever moment we happen to desire it. But true freedom subsists in being joined to Jesus Christ. Being joined to His grace and being joined to His good purposes. And as both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter point out, we are under authority not as wildly licentious people, but as free people. Not so that we can do evil, but so that we can do good. And if we suffer for doing good, Peter's been very clear about this. We've been doing this Bible study on 1 Peter. If we suffer for doing evil, then so be it, is basically his message. But if we suffer for doing good, then it's a credit to us. And that is the good news that I want you to see embedded in not only this account from the Acts of the Apostles as that church faces in the coming days persecutions, martyrdoms, etc. But also what the church sees in the appearance of the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. It is an image of kingdom glory. This is what Jesus says to the disciples on the road. Listen to what he says. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? His message to them is very clear. My glory is not to have an easy life. The suffering is the means of entering into that glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. And this is what he says at the end of all this. next section. He says to the disciples, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And when this is spoken, it is not simply those disciples who are gathered who are witnesses. You and I are are witnesses. We are witnesses to the power and the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have become so not because we saw it with our own eyes, but because it was so graciously lavished upon us. And for this we give thanks and into this we enter. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.